do we need an abolitionist state or do we need something else? Do we need many something else? Um, if we believe that human societies can occur without surveillance, without police policing and caging human beings, why can't we also imagine it's possible to organize having people's needs met without centralized authoritarian forms of distributing power and upholding legitimate violence? And what might the world look like if it wasn't organized into discrete sort of members-based units with hierarchical structure and this insider-outsider model of the citizen and the non-citizen? This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Welcome, everyone. We are so excited to be with you this afternoon. My name is Andrea Ritchie. I'm the co-founder with Mariam Kaba of Interrupting Criminalization and the co-author of No More Police, A Case for Abolition. For folks who can't see me, I'm a very light-skinned black woman with curly hair, blue glasses. I'm uh, wearing a black shirt and uh, wrap and in my living room in Detroit with some art on the walls. I am coming to you from Huawei Natanong, the land of the Anishinaabe, Odawa, Wyandotte, and Potoatomi people, also, as I mentioned earlier, known by settlers as Detroit. This event is part of a series uh, that is hosted by Interrupting Criminalization, highlighting key themes. And oh, before I do that, let me just stop myself and uh, give the digital land acknowledgement um, that we tend to uh, start our events with. And it is a land acknowledgement that was developed by Adrian Wong, I believe at the beginning of the pandemic when so many of our programs uh, moved online. Since our activities are shared digitally on the internet, let's also take a moment to consider the legacy of colonization embedded within technologies, structures, and ways of thinking that we use every day. We are using equipment and high-speed internet not available in many indigenous communities. Even the technologies that are central to much of the art we make leave significant carbon footprints, contributing to changing climates that disproportionately affect Indigenous peoples worldwide. We invite you to join us in acknowledging all of this, as well as our shared responsibility to make good of this time and for each of us to consider our roles in reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship. So with that, I will kick us off by saying that this event is part of a series of events hosted by Interrupting Criminalization, highlighting key themes and questions in No More Police, a case for abolition. And today's conversation focuses on the role of the state in abolitionist futures. 
We want to thank Haymarket Books for co-hosting tonight and sharing uh, your incredible platform with us. And Robin Maynard and Leanne Betasamosake Simpson, co-authors of Rehearsals for Living from Haymarket Press, for joining us today. Unfortunately, my co-author and co-conspirator at Interrupting Criminalization and Many Things is unable to join us tonight, sends her deep apologies and regards. I'll do my best to rep for no more police. Um, but as we all know, um, Mariam's insights and vision are irreplaceable and unique. And um, I'm sure we will hear more from her on these topics um, at a future date. When a group of about 60 organizers, including Robin and I, gathered in Miami in January 2020 to assess the state of organizing towards police abolition as part of larger movements for the prison industrial complex abolition, we quickly came up against questions implicating our relationship to the state as abolitionist organizers. Similar questions quickly surfaced later the same year when the 2020 uprisings popularized the call to defund police. Questions about where to call for investment of funds, resources and power that we divested from police departments, whether into other state institutions or community-based organizations, into public housing or community land trusts, into public health or community-based care, quickly surfaced among defund organizers in cities across the country. Questions around how closely to engage with state institutions, how much energy we invested in electing and collaborating with politicians and policymakers who control police budgets, whether or not to serve on government public safety task forces that were convened in response to movement demands, whether or not to call for community control of police departments, whether or not to accept state funding with all of the carceral strings attached similarly challenged and sometimes divided organizers. Concerns about legislative proposals to create departments and institutions within the carceral state, and sometimes even within police departments, that would be devoted to developing, resourcing, and promoting non-carceral responses were raised. Similarly, challenges to proposed alternatives to police responses that perpetuate policing in different forms by placing criminalized people under the control and regulation of different state actors and institutions, including coerced medical treatment, involvement of family police, and other carceral social interventions were also raised. Questions focused on whether a different response beyond meeting material needs without conditions is even necessary, which in turn prompted questions about what the state should be regulating, if anything, and how. At the root of these questions and tensions lies the question of what our relationship to the state is and should be as abolitionists and what role the state plays in abolitionist futures. And not all abolitionists agree on these points. These are live conversations within our movements. But these in turn require us to excavate what we understand the state or states to be and how our understandings are shaped by our immersion and subjugation in the settler colonial racial capitalist carceral states imposed on Turtle Island in which these conversations are unfolding. It also requires us to break open and explore the spaces between what Robin D.G. Kelly, who wrote the afterword for Rehearsals for Living, recently described at Socialism 2022 as the binary between state and non-state. He said, revolution becomes a problem if we believe that the state is the site of struggle. 
We take the state and overturn social relations. We have learned that this is not necessarily the case. We need a new way of thinking, an independent way of thinking that the state is the problem. There is clear evidence of that. What does revolution mean in a discourse, in a framework in which we are questioning the state as the primary or sole source of actually making things happen? In No More Police, Mariam and I ask a similar question. What additional possibilities emerge if we move beyond the dichotomy of capturing or dismantling the modern Western state? What if our goal is not to seize the carceral state in an effort to transform it, but to seize power and resources from the police state to create conditions under which new economic systems and forms of governance can emerge? In rehearsals for living, Robin and Leanne engage in a rich and gorgeous dialogue around the impossibilities of freedom for Black and Indigenous peoples within settler colonial nation states and the unlimited possibilities for freedom that lie beyond them. So we're excited to bring these conversations across books and across borders together tonight. We had also hoped that Ruth Wilson Gilmore, author of Abolition Geographies and the Forward to Rehearsals for Living, who has some very definitive answers to these questions, could join us tonight. But unfortunately, schedules did not align. I know that I, for one, and perhaps all of us, will be hearing her voice in our heads as we move forward in the conversation. So we'll quote her, I'm sure, liberally as we move forward. So let's jump in without further ado. And I want to invite um, first Leanne and then Robin to describe and introduce yourselves and just share a little bit about what contexts and conditions and experiences have shaped your understanding of the state or states. And we'll come back around this question a few times. We'll talk about how, you know, different organizing has shaped this and how abolitionist organizing particularly has shaped this. But just for the first round, as you're introducing yourself, kind of what about your origin story or where you came from or how you came up in political organizing, um, how did that shape your understanding of the state or states? So I'll, I'll kick it to you first, Leanne. Thank you, Andrea. Ani Kinewaya, Gidigabijina Denuema, Kinegachi Anishnabek Ogaming Nadonjaba, Vidasmasake Nadijnakaz. Apologies to Judith and, and Lisa who are doing the um, the uh, the translation here. Um, I wanted to introduce myself in Ojibwe or in Anishinaabe Moan. My name is Leanne Simpson. I am Michisagi Kanishinaabek, and I'm a band member of Alderville First Nation. Our homeland is the north shore of Lake Ontario. Um, I live in Peterborough, Ontario, and use she/her pronouns. And I'm I'm in my homeland today. Um, I'm really uh, honored and excited to be part of this conversation with Robin and Andrea, thinking through these ideas around the state. And I think that I started to become politically aware as an Indigenous young person, um, watching coming up in the 1990s, watching and participating in um, protests around James Bay II, a hydroelectric development, Ipawash, um, the uprising of Ganasatake and Ganawage, the so-called Oka crisis, were all sort of unfolding as I was figuring out who I was as an Anishinaabe person in the world and how I wanted to live. And so I think looking back now, 
those experiences really instilled in me how important things like community, land, organizing, struggle are. I went on to to do some degrees and I think my writing in some ways is the intellectual work of, of some of these movements. I became um, a parent and was doing organizing around um, language, a language nest for my for my kids, the reclamation project around culture and, and language. And then I was involved in, in I don't know more um, as well as an organizer and as a writer. And I think that I've always maybe understood this state to be this structure that was imposed on Indigenous people, that it was the architecture that sort of set up things like dispossession, um, extraction, racial capitalism, heteropatriarchy, all of those kinds of things. I think what I learned from those early protests is that it's powerful to put in Indigenous bodies or bodies on the land in between um, settlers and, and the money or settlers and the trees or settlers and the resources. So I sort of have come to understand that when Canadian legal or policy or negotiation or inquiry or royal commissions fail to quell Indigenous uprisings and Indigenous resistance, then that's when police and army are, are brought in. So I think at least initially I understood the state and colonialism to be just interchangeably interchangeable. Um, I think then my intellectual work kind of turned towards indigenous land issues and resurgence. Um, and that was a movement that was turning away from the state and trying to get indigenous peoples uh, to dream and to vision beyond, to build indigenous worlds based on indigenous ethics and indigenous legal practices and indigenous governance, build this otherwise. Um, that our ancestors lived in, but that we had to sort of update to meet the, the needs of, of our peoples in contemporary times. And so it was a turning away of sort of the politics of distraction in the state. And that's kind of when I started to realize how much indigenous life is entangled and enmeshed with the state and how difficult it is to even kind of crack open those those interstitial breathing spaces where indigenous folks can um, come together and and think beyond what the state is offering, whether that's through treaties or the Indian Act or inquiries or or commissions, um, and really talk about what happens when indigenous people are just when our activism and when our organizing is is focused on the state and focused on recognition within the state. Um, so that took a took a, a decade of me thinking along those lines. And then I think the majority of, of my practice has always been on the land with elders in, in our language and in our culture and trying to learn how to think with inside Indigenous or Anishinaabe thought. And I think the one thing that really struck me about 10 years ago is how um, a lot of my life and a lot of a lot of indigenous people's lives has been around reclaiming language and land and and culture and at some point i realized that um 
that part of those those understandings, particularly from an Indigenous perspective, are really international in scope. And so connecting on a global scale to anti-colonial peoples and movements and struggles um, outside of, of my own um, community became really, really important. And I think that kind of um, thinking through together and solidarity work and um, listening and learning and thinking alongside people that were interested in building other worlds that did not center racial capitalism, prisons, borders, enclosures, um, amassing kind of extreme wealth at the expense of ending lives for all other living things on the planet um, became a shift that was really important to me. So I'll leave it there for now. Thank you. We'll come back to um, other points on that journey or revisit them. Robin, did you want to sh introduce yourself, describe yourself, and share your initial introductions to how you think about state or states? Uh, yeah, first of all, I'm just so happy to be here with both of you talking about freedom oriented struggle uh, with, you know, two feminists who I deeply respect and uh, share community with. So I'm really glad to hear to be here um, with both of you. Thank you. Um, my name is Robin Maynard. My pronouns are she, her. I am a light skinned black woman with uh, with locks with a kind of long grown out ombre, blonde on the bottom, dark brown near the top. And I am coming to you from uh, near near Toronto, here on the lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabeg, and the Wendat. Also, of course, Toronto being a landing point for the global Black diaspora, from Black folks enslaved here, from people who undertook rebellious struggles through the Underground Railroad, and successive generations of the global displaced Black uh, diaspora, with people fleeing the ravages of imperial and neo-imperial extraction, structural adjustment, and militarism, um, you know, enabled by North American and European histories of slavery and colonialism. So in terms of sort of traditions and understandings of the state, and I'll probably get to come back to some of this later, I think, but so I was born in Winnipeg and came of age sort of politically in Montreal. These are both cities in Canada for folks listening who aren't based here. And in Winnipeg, like other cities on the prairies, what's very visible in terms of uh, the state is really the role of the state as a precondition to an enforcer of Indigenous genocide. You know, nearly three quarters of Indigenous jail and prison populations are Indigenous in the prairies. Um, Winnipeg is a city where since 1919 water was diverted um, from the Shoal Lake and Anishinaabe community of Shoal Lake 40 First Nations to Winnipeg tap water, right? The land of starlight tours um, where police took Indigenous folks out of the city and were left to walk back. So it's a city where if you're paying attention to anything that the state is doing, it's a clear it makes a clear reality of the role of the state in making possible, um, you know, the violence of settler colonialism that's very much present. As I moved to a bigger, blacker city of Montreal, closer to more folks in um, Black Caribbean diaspora community, which is my own, uh, it's a, also, you know, a longstanding heart of transnational Black power struggle, of Black folks organizing against state violence, against neocolonial violence of Canadian imperialism, past and present. Um, Something that I've noticed now that I no longer live in Montreal is that I think Montreal, more than anywhere else in North America, is particularly sort of anarchist, anarchic, I would say, not even from a doctrinary standpoint, um, in a way that's not predominantly, predominantly white, um, but I would say that a significant element of what migrant justice and anti-policing organizing, you know, with the really strong leadership of Black and racialized women in those communities 
um, really is organized around a sort of structure of what I used to more clunkily in my writing call anti-racist feminist struggle from an anti-authoritarian perspective. I don't know that we need those words at this time, but I think what I'm trying to say is um, doing work around racist state violence, um, you know, that I was engaged in communities of Black people working against racial profiling, multiracial coalitions of uh, folks working to end police killings, part of No Borders work, you know, supporting people experiencing detention and deportation while trying to push a broader No Borders politic, but doing this organizing in a structural way that was really non-authoritarian and consensus-based, right? So without this being kind of the centerpiece of what we were fighting for, it was a little bit of part of the political process there. Um, I think like many people living as a black woman who loves black people and black children had taught me that the state on stolen lands built by stolen people is, of course, a primary source of violence um, in our lives. Right. Living in a community invested in so a political community invested in solidarity with indigenous folks uh, to me means that the state has not been and can't be understood as a legitimate authority in a settler society as a way of organizing land access to use it, uh, resources or having a legitimate use of violence. Um, sort of more personally, I think that having spent a lot, a significant amount of my 20s working in the community sector, you're sort of always pushed into what I would describe for myself as a skeptical engagement with some aspects of reform, right? Um, one least favorite part of my job used to be like once every few months I had to train what we call the it was a French workplace, so les bébés police, the, 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 you know, the police students trying to sort of, based on the assumption that if you could somehow teach them that about the realities of, um, you know, of racism and sexism uh, for Black, Indigenous and other women in the sex trade, that they would somehow be less violent, right? Um, been, I have had to sit at community tables where, among any, many other things, you're sitting with neighborhood stakeholders, uh, you know, trying to con Convince the police not to throw away the harm reduction materials that you yourself are giving out, right? So I do think that what is very clear uh, is that that will make you an abolitionist fast, right? You learn how this sort of having to come up against this idea uh, of, you know, reform by means of education, by means of training, and you continue to see your community members suffering, often at the hands of the literal same people that you trained, right? Um, I think it becomes very clear that this kind of engagement is just running into a brick wall over and over again. And particularly when I learned from Black women who've been active in, you know, generations well before mine, like uh, Brenda, Brenda Paris, um, who'd been involved, for example, in police trainings, after the killing of Anthony Griffin, who was killed in 1987 by the police in Montreal, and then we're sort of drafted into this project to train the police then, then what you realize is we just, you know, there's this continual duping into the same project. And as I said, I think something that's really beautiful, I think, in, in your and Miriam's work, Andrea, is just becoming clear that so many of the people who become abolitionists do so in trying to work with our communities against violence, right? And you try everything, but what you realize is those kinds of appeals to certain kinds of state reforms uh, do not leave anybody safer. And you necessarily, if you had not already, turn towards other kinds of safety, right? That is a kind of logical progression if you are deeply invested in the communities uh, that you you know, work with, live with, and are a part of that this idea of turning toward the state cannot get you to anything that we that we would consider safety, not in the place that I live. So there's lots more that I could say, but as an introduction, I would say these are some of the ways that I began to engage with thinking about the role of the state um, as an impediment to freedom, as a site of contestation, um, 
and many other many other definitions. So many beautifully written definitions. There's so many ways that you all talk about this in your book that are just so, um, as uh, Leanne was saying, that crack open space to think beyond. And I'm so grateful for those. Um, and I did mean to set up the conversation to be clear that, um, you know, all of us are approaching this through Black feminist, uh, and I've been taught Indigenous feminisms, um, through the ways in which we are, are seeing uh, the work. And I want to come back to how that shapes our understandings a little bit more, Robin. Um, for me, I mean, I grew up in many different kinds of states. I grew up, I was born um, in Montreal also. Um, so I grew up in a North American settler colonial welfare state, um, but at various times also lived for varying brief periods in what was a post-revolutionary state at the time in Peru, in a former colony of Jamaica, which was in the throes of structural adjustment in which the World Bank and the IMF were actually the state, <laughs> were actually the, the certainly the driving force of what was doing the distribution and organization of access to land and resources through their financial policy. So that was a particular sort of neo-colonial experience of the state. Um, and then also uh, for some time as a child uh, in the dictatorship in Haiti. And so that helped me see states in different forms um, and understand that they're not necessarily one thing, that they are the product of conditions and contestations for power. They're not um, sort of a fixed thing. But in each of those cases, they were deeply shaped by racial capitalism and settler colonialism um, and came up uh, definitely shaped by socialist um, sort of frameworks or, or um, thought and, and later communist thought and ideology, um, which has a particular view of the state, but at the same time, um, to your point, Robin, as a survivor of violence um, in my home and outside my home and later at the hands of police, it was clear to me the state was not actually, you know, the source of safety in, in that kind of situation. It wasn't distributing safety to me, to my mother, to my grandmother, to anyone in my life in a way that, um, that felt uh, resonant to the issues that we were facing. And then um, in my early 20s, I witnessed firsthand, up front, up close, the violent enforcement of settler colonialism that Leanne referenced earlier at Ganesatake, which was an army, uh, first police and then army um, siege that was laid to an indigenous community and nation a mile from where I grew up across the river. Um, and where I um, immediately you know, engaged in what I felt was my role to do in terms of defense and solidarity and presence and witness to that community. But it made it really clear to me that no matter what story was being told about the Canadian nation state, that was not <laughs> the state that I was witnessing or I wanted to have any part of. And certainly heard enough stories from my mother um, of her experience as a black migrant to the states, uh, to the Canadian nation state in the sixties that I didn't want any part of that state either. Um, the one that you're describing as well, uh, Robin, in terms of the experiences of Black communities in Canada. 
And at the same time, I benefited from the social welfare state. I had free health care. I continue to experience rage every time I have to pay a copay here or I hear of someone who can't access medical care because of a barrier of cost. I experienced I had access to college education for less than 10000 a year. Now, for some reason, I chose to come to the U.S. and be indebted for the rest of my life, but I didn't have to, right? Um, I was able to be on unemployment insurance for a year when I became disabled, um, when I first became disabled. Um, I was working at an organization, a national women's organization that was funded by the state. So even though there were these clear ruptures in terms of my understanding of the state as a benevolent force and clear um, sort of focus on the state as a settler colonial violent racial capitalist force um, in Canada, the goal of movement and organizing somehow was always to take and demand more of the state. And yes, we also got caught up in royal commissions on gender-based violence, on social policy, to include more people in the benefits, to redress um, harms past and present to indigenous communities, to black communities, to migrant communities, to resist conditions and like workfare on um, accessing social entitlements to resist exclusion or policing of people and through social services. So I think um, it was really, I think I've always had, I guess what I'm trying to say, a confused or contested relationship with the state and also um, a recognition that uh, that there's a, a spectrum of of states that are shaped by context and politics and that there's no kind of disembodied state that's dissociated from political conditions or contestations or context. And most of us are shaped by living in or under carceral racial capitalist settler colonial neo post-colonial states, even when they are fighting to be post-revolutionary states. And so that also shapes our understanding. So I feel like there's so much there. Um, and there's so much in the ways that our political engagements and abolitionist organizing also shape that. And you alluded to that, um, Robin, and I want to um, come back to that for both of you. I know, um, Leanne, you mentioned Idle No More, which is a movement that had a profound impact in Canada, which I don't know that many people I organize with in the U.S. know more, near enough about. So I'm curious if you wanted to expand more on that and then also on, you know, um, how your understanding of the state has evolved kind of in recent periods where abolitionist organizing has gained uh, more traction in the context of some of the questions that have come up around that. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Abolishing State Violence, A World Beyond Bombs, Borders, and Cages by Ray Acheson. Abolishing State Violence is an urgent and accessible analysis of the key structures of state violence in our world today, and a clarion call to action for their abolition. Connecting movements for social justice with ideas for how activists can support and build on this analysis and strategy, this book shows that there are many mutually supportive abolition movements, each enhanced by a shared understanding of the relationship between structures of violence and a shared framework for challenging them on the basis of their roots in patriarchy, racism, militarism, settler colonialism, and capitalism. As Beth E. Ritchie puts it, the analysis is so clear and the demand to build a different world is so compelling that readers will turn the last pages of this book and be ready to get to work for freedom. 
Find Abolishing State Violence at haymarketbooks.org. Yeah, sure. So I Don't Know More was sort of the the beginnings of it were in 2012 and the, the sort of winter of 2013 was where there was a lot of indigenous um, peoples in the in the streets and in the malls doing round dances um, and demanding sort of better from from the state. Um, Chief Teresa Spence undertook a, a fast outside of of Ottawa. Um, and it was a very broad-based kind of coalition. Um, and people were in the streets sort of for a variety of issues. Um, there was groups of people that were um, that's activism was very much tied to some some budget bills, some omnibus bills in the in Canadian Parliament, and then there was more radical um, demands as well. I would say that looking back on it, it was one of the first attempts of 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 organizing using the internet. Um, it came about very quickly. I came about kind of outside of the the several of the groups that were were organizing on all of these different issues, and I think that there was not a lot of of face to face um, movement building work done. So it kind of collapsed pretty quickly in on itself um, in 2013. There was a lot of, of pressure within the movements uh, and talk about different kinds of tactics and about who was was um, who was centered, I guess, in, in terms of change. And I think the state, the Canadian state, and wanting better and wanting rights and wanting um, treaty rights fulfilled was something that was very prominent in that movement that sort of coalesced into we need to we need to vote we need to vote this more right-wing government out of of office which was the harper government and 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 vote uh, uh, a more liberal neoliberal in which was trudeau and so i think that i learned a lot from from participating in that movement, from writing alongside that movement, I learned a lot about how important it is to develop um, authentic relationships with the people that I'm I'm in the struggle with. I learned about how important I think solidarity is in developing uh, reciprocal relationships outside of crisis, and I think I learned from my my own work about. The diversity and the division within indigenous mobilizations. There's a spectrum of of reasons on why people are mobilized, and a lot of people are very attached to the state because our communities and because our lives are so enmeshed with the state. They're so enmeshed with the Indian Act. They're so enmeshed with treaties, um, and and it's hard. Um, I think when I'm working, I spend a lot of time in the north. Um, working at the, the Chinta Center for Research and Learning, which is an education and a political project where we redistribute resources from the state into community to um, um, have harvesters uh, creating food security in communities, having elders being able to to teach, taking youth out onto the land and, and providing a kind of decolonial education at the community level. And I think through that work, 
Indigenous people from our lot in the context of our lives know very much from our experiences and from from experiences that are linked to what you and Robin have both talked about. That when um, when we're looking for safety, when we're looking for justice, when we're looking for the resources that we need to, whether it's clean drinking water for our families or uh, a school that's not racist, um, looking towards the police and looking towards the legal system, looking for the state doesn't bring us about those kinds of things. And so where there's a split is, do we organize and put more pressure on the state so that our lives are, so that we're able to live our lives, so that we're able to be alive? Or do we um, dream and build something different? And sometimes I think that I'm interested in the nuances in between those two kind of dichotomies. Um, because it's very important that people have drinking water. It's very important that people have food. It's very important that people aren't forced to live, you know, 17 people in a two-bedroom house in the Northwest Territories. It's important that people have access to health care um, in the same way that I do in the South. And so I think that, um, I think that it's important but, and it's also important to keep those that organizing and that visioning and that building the alternative um, alive. Because I think every time we come together in community and build the alternative and meet the material needs of our of our people, even if it's if something quite small, we learn something. We unlock the knowledge that we need to build this other world. And so those rehearsals, those coming together. Um, making making sure that people have have food or have clean drinking water or have access to learning their language. Um, those smaller projects are very, very important in terms of generating the knowledge, the skill, and the relationships to be able to bring forth this world. And so I think of world making then as, as like a, a beautiful process, a beautiful, struggling, frustrating <laughs> process. Um, that maybe is alongside these these other sorts of um, actions that we have to take to ensure that we are able to to make it to next year. Thank you so much. I think we're gonna spend a lot of time in those nuances. That's where we wanted this conversation to sit and exactly in in the possibilities that, that unfold when we practice and rehearse um, abolition as a rehearsal of life, um, as uh, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore would say. So um, we'll circle back to that, but tell us, um, you mentioned the community-based organizing and abolitionist organizing is something that gets you more directly to the position that you have around the state from skepticism to let me not spend too much time with it. And then Robin, you then spent a lot of time over the last two years um, supporting defund organizers across Canada who were engaging with the state. So I'm just curious about how your organizing and particularly abolitionist organizing and praxis has, has maybe evolved or continued to shape your understanding. Sure. Um, thanks so much. And Leanne, I think it was just really great to sort of hear that transformative perspective as it was mapped across across different spaces. But um, so at the socialist conference that Haymarket organized, big thank you to Haymarket this past fall, uh, comrade and friend Harsha Walia used the terms, I think she said ideologically, ideologically poly when it comes to the state. And this made me laugh really hard, but also I could relate in this way, right? Because I think that 
on the left in the context of just coming up against death-making institutions, um, a lot of us find a certain kind of flexibility in some places, right? Due to pragmatism, due to preferring action to inaction, even in moments of some real disagreements, right? So I think that we can have principled coalitions that have come together despite some non-ideological alignments, right? When it comes to practically overturning, trying to overturn a particular kind of violence, right? So for me, a history of being involved at varying levels to work to decriminalize sex work um, in Canada is one example of this, right? You can have a large unwieldy coalition where not everyone is an abolitionist, not everyone especially would agree about the role of the state, for example, in freedom struggle, but coming together to temporarily agree that we are trying to push back one arm of the carceral state, right? And I think that that's something that um, has sort of informed, um, I mean, I guess a certain kind of flexibility that I have around this, but also if I think about what it's meant to work against racial profiling, for example, in the Anglo-Caribbean community and NDG, um, where I was part of uh, starting up a group called Project X with you know, other young black folks and community workers to end, you know, to end racial profiling, right? So working with people who are not not on a particular doctrinary line about the role of the state, but with a specific goal of just supporting young folks in the neighborhood to not be harassed on the daily, right? So I think that there's this way in which we can sometimes coalesce around particular ways of minimizing harm. Um, and I think that that comes to a kind of acknowledgement of that we can agree and what's really important uh, at this time is not to compromise when it comes to the carceral state, right? So this is something that I think really does unite many different kind of valencies of left struggles uh, toward the possibility of abolition. I think that we can even see, you know, one example, sorry, that I wanted to mention is that, you know, even I think that one example that shows us actually how the carceral state has the capacity to, min to minimize its own power in some ways if we push it is the status for all movement, right? So you have in Canada this moment where we're on the, the precipice of possible mass regularization for a very large number, for hundreds of thousands um, of undocumented people, right? Which has come from decades of struggle uh, led by asylum seekers, by migrants to say that we can imagine a world with no borders, that we can actually imagine, you know, taking away, stripping away the power of the state uh, to, to add or to, to to decide who has the legitimacy to be here. So of course, mass regularization is not ending borders. So it's not as it's not an abolitionist win um, in a full sense, right? But I think you really, in some senses, actually see a kind of minimization of that harm and a kind of success that comes from a grassroots struggle against the grassroots state. So what I'm trying to get at, I think, is that the a really crucial point of agreement is taking aim at minimizing the violence of the carceral state, understanding policing as a kind of harm, because I think we really, as many of us, you know, on this panel and probably many people listening today, understand that there we can't make compromises with carceral feminists, for example, to build more feminist jails, right? So there are certain places in which there is not a possibility for a kind of flexibility or pragmatism in terms of getting things done, because we fundamentally come at opposite goals. And I think that you know, in that in that spirit is one helpful way for me to think about what is or is not a valuable kind of coalition making, what is or is not a valuable sort of way of imagining possible futures. But I think that something that I've really been thinking with, especially over the last few years, you know, I've been learning from a lot of people, from a lot of movements, from a lot of um, organizers um, uh, who've really schooled me and continue to school me um, in some of the political communities I'm part of on the wide spanning ways of understanding, as you kind of pointed to Andrea, uh, and thinking about uh, nation and nation state, right? 
So part of my own political education as part of a radio project, for example, I did an interview project, I think it was about 12 years ago now, uh, it turned into a zine series interviewing elder Black Panthers who identifies as anarchists, right? So Lorenzo Camboa Irvin, Odoria Latalo, and Achanti Alston really talking about these kinds of configurations. But um, I've also learned enormously from both from study and from learning from elders about extremely valuable labor that has happened across black nationalist pan-African traditions, right? That really come from a different way of thinking about the possibility of what nation or what state could be and that are not identical or reducible to one another, right? So in particular, I think I've learned a lot from and consider as intellectual and political touchstones, many generations of black socialist feminists, some of whom I'm in direct community with, and others whose lives, works and histories have greatly um, in, informed mine, right? I think there's really particular ways in which the way that people have thought about organizing home space and governance from this political perspective uh, ha stands to teach us enormously about what may be some of the possibilities and horizons. Um, I've learned a lot from, from your work, Leanne, from Glenn's work about other ways of thinking about nation, governance, again, that are not equivalent to or reducible to the idea of the nation state, but are other ways of thinking about governance that are, you know, both proceeding and beyond um, this particular kind of, of formation, right? So it's clear that the settler state, in particular, uh, in the afterlife of slavery and the ongoing aftermath of slavery, indigenous genocide, uh, you know, is not possible to have the liberation of black and indigenous uh, freedom struggles um, really, the state is always trying to reroute and undermine these struggles, right, by means of criminalization, co-optation. I think that U.S. the U.S. and Canada as political projects are not recuperable. I think, though, that there's other ways, and Andrea, you were sort of pointing at this earlier on, there's other ways that people have tried to stretch and make a state be something else globally, right? So in the Caribbean and African anti-colonial struggles in particular, and of course, you know, the internationalist arm of black power struggles in North America mapped out visions for nation uh, that are by no means identical to this to the state mean this the sort of global state system, the capitalist state system that we have today, forwarding ideas of nation that were very different than the Westphalian nation state that we have um, ahead of us. Of course, some of those visions involved just the same thing with the black face on top, but there were others. And I think the work of Adam Getachew, of William C. Anderson. Uh, of Robin Kelly help us look at the ways that Black anti-colonial folks' freedom dreams extended well beyond a particular kind of thinking about nation and reimagined global governance in ways that were really different. Of course, in ways that were actively destroyed by Western uh, neocolonial violence, right? Um, so we never got to see what an international order could have looked like beyond the capitalist state, despite you know really valuable work by Claudia Jones, for example, to really try to build a different formation um, in terms of what her vision for, for example, the West Indian Federation could have been, right? In terms of free travel, freedom of movement um, and, and an end of capitalism in the Caribbean region. Um, you know, instead we saw Alexis Pauline Gums uses the terms, uh, you know, the overthrow of the revolution in Grenada, right? Where she says a home governed by anti-capitalist people is too dangerous to survive. So we see that there have been many other ways of reimagining governance that have been, you know, assassinated by um, ongoing Western imperial projects. And I think that just one more thing I wanted to add on this before before I toss it over to you, Andrea, is that especially I think from queer Black Caribbean feminist past and present, there's so much to learn. Um, what we learned from M. Jackie Alexander, uh, she writes this beautiful piece: "Not just any body can be a citizen," right? Showing how in you know the post-colonial state 
the lives of women, of queer folks, of gender and sexually diverse folks, of sex workers have continued to face, you know, particular kinds of structurally mandated violence of being pushed outside of citizenship, even in a place that's nominally that has nominally sort of reorganized itself. So as you're pointing out, I think, Andrea, the way that the state has been weaponized to crush radicalism at home, even in places where it was intended to be something else, I think really has to ask us to think about what is the structural issue here. In some ways, of course, we can't let imperialism off the hook, but it's important to look towards what is the structural aspect of seizing a form of governance that is upheld by centralized authority by policing and prisons and borders, right? So these are some of the ways we need to think about the ways that freedom struggles have both been waged against, um, but also sometimes been undermined by these same structures. So, you know, the really thing I'm trying to get at more broadly is that people have struggled towards freedom in different forms and structures and tried to make different kinds of containers for what organizing human life could be like. I do have respect for many of these across a few political spectrums because there are many histories of waging anti-racist, anti-capitalist and feminist struggle, of abolitionist struggle that have informed and continue to inform what home space can be, what governing human life can be, um, and what freedom-oriented struggle means for me. So much richness there. And I'm having like the experience of like reading, not reading your book, because this is a different conversation, but of, of just the overwhelm of thought and space that both of your thinking opens up for me and so many of us. Um, so I'm just uh, overwhelmed with gratitude for that. I want to um, come back to so many things that you said, including sort of these other notions of governance, but, um, and also to the piece that you were saying about, you know, building a coalition together around uh, decriminalizing sex work or status for all and how even those things that feel like, okay, we can agree on something actually can put ruptures based on how people understand the state, right? Because people sometimes will say, sure, we should decriminalize sex work, but we should regulate it which is actually a different kind of criminalization, right? Or we should make sure, sure, we should decriminalize, but we should in, invite people into services coercively by making it a condition of their survival, right? Um, or we should presume that people want to exit and we should structure what we do in the world around that. So even within that kind of fragile coalition, I also was thinking when you were talking about the Status for All campaign, that in one ways it's liberatory, in other ways it's reinscribing the settler colonial state. It's now regularizing a whole bunch of other people on land that is not the states to invite people to, right? At the same time as I am from people who would, you know, have at some point benefited from that, right? So I think it's, um, these things are, are always, the, these questions about the role of the state are always, and our relationship to the state are always under our organizing, even when it's not as visible. Um, I think just to share a few organizing um, things that really shaped my um, evolution around the role of the state and how I became, I guess, now I have a new term for it, ideologically poly, which sounds so much better than confused, um, which is <laughs> otherwise described. <laughs> I mean, I think I can't, what I, I was really influenced by being deeply involved in anti-apartheid struggles and, and then seeing what happened in post-apartheid South Africa, uh, Sandinista FMLN solidarity, Cuba solidarity work, and seeing you know, all of those sort of rehearsals of something of liberatory seizures that went, that were assassinated 
or were otherwise absorbed, co-opted, starved, crushed, <laughs> otherwise deformed or, or um, uh, con- contorted by racial capitalism as a global force. And uh, came in 2007 for the first time to the Allied Media Conference here in Detroit and met Grace Lee Boggs, who I am ashamed to say I had never heard of before, <laughs> and heard her speak and was like, oh my gosh, this person has um, has another approach um, for me to to learn from. And I had learned a little bit about it in following the struggles of, Zapati- of the Zapatista insurrection in terms of, of sort of this notion that we are building something otherwise, right? That we are not just contesting with the state and continually being disappointed when we seize, capture it, and are crushed or or distorted by racial capitalism. And for her to talk about some of the things that you were talking about, Leanne, about place-based processes of, of, of building and meeting our needs together and practicing and, and rehearsing. And I think also... Um, the sort of notion that other worlds are possible and that we're organized around this kind of thinking and via social forums. So I think there was a sort of a moment of like, oh, it's kind of like the moment of abolition. I remember the moment when I became an abolitionist, Angela Davis was in Toronto. It was March 21st, 1999. She came and gave a talk on International Human Rights Day and she laid out the case for abolition. And I was like, oh, we can do that? We can just get rid of the whole thing? Like, sign me up. And I felt like when I heard Grace and read and learned more about the Zapatistas, like, oh, we don't have to fight with the state all the time, as Leanne was saying. We don't have to be enmeshed and absorbed in constantly fighting this state and practicing new things outside of it. It opened up a lot of possibility for me. And so I do think that a lot of that evolution for me also came within Insight. Um, and Insight being um, an organization that understood the state to be the central organizer of gender-based violence, right? So then that was another piece that clicked for me, which is like, there's no, there's no training the cops. There's no more from the cops. There's no better. It's just this state is set up to impose gender-based, racialized gender-based violence, ableist violence, imperialist violence. Um, and the work that I did around documenting the violence of policing is experienced by Black women and women of color across um, uh, Turtle Island in some ways, just as you said, took me quicker to that conclusion because there is no safety in any state institution for racialized women, queer and trans people in the global North. So, um, and was really, um, you know, Insight was very much informed by our compas from the global south, particularly Paula Rojas and many others who offered us, again, different ways, like Grace Lee Boggs, to think about our relationship to the state and to move towards abolitionist futures beyond the state. So I really came out of Insight sort of organized against the two-state, you know, capture and transform the state approach. Um, and and those questions have only that I outlined kind of at the beginning in the context setting have only sharpened this for me. And... Um, and made me, you know, very clear that not only, um, obviously, abolition requires us to end racial capitalism, but while that's necessary, it's not sufficient. We need to dismantle the carceral state and to, in that process, open up possibilities that don't take the same shape in new forms. I think Ruthie would say we need to dismantle the carceral arm of the state rather than the carceral state per se, and she 
vehemently argues we need to seize the state in order to change it and to turn, uh, to quote her, the fiscal and bureaucratic capacity of the state toward the collective good rather than to the ends to which it's been devoted. And that was some of the things that you were talking about, Leanne, in terms of um, seizing the state's resources for our own good. Um, but the question for me then is, is you know, is, is a non-carceral state possible? And I think I just want to name that we've been talking about different kinds of states, right? We've been talking about settler states. We've been talking about racial capitalist states. We've been talking about carceral states. And as Leanne was saying at the beginning, I don't know if those are all interchangeable. They all seem interrelated um, and interlocking. Um, but I wonder if even if you peel away kind of, you know, if you peel away a racial capitalist state, do you still have a carceral state? Is there a way to have a non-carceral state. You know, Ruthie would say, yes, we should have an abolitionist state. Why wouldn't we want that? Why wouldn't we fight for that? But I don't know um, if my organizing and my experience um, representing folks in different systems, like are there any arms of states as we know them that aren't carceral? Everywhere I look, they are, but do they have to be, right? And Dean Spade says the state is by definition a technology of extraction, that the state's function inherently is to through centralization of resources and bureaucratic institutions to sort and distribute life chances. Is that unique to carceral racial capitalist settler colonial states or is that some essence of a state formation that will inevitably exclude someone, non-citizens, migrants, disabled people, queer trans people, Dalit people, whoever, is not is excluded from some notion of the collective good, and will we always be in constant station about who's in and who's out? And so, I think that's where my struggle lies: is that I really struggle to envision an abolitionist nation state. But I'm curious about whether that means all centralized infrastructures of governance and resource distribution themselves are irrecuperable. And I'm really inspired, Leanne, by your vision of an unapologetic place-based nationhood using indigenous practices operating in an ethical and principled way from an intact land base. But I feel curious and conflicted about how to engage it without romanticizing or colonizing it, particularly as a descendant of both settlers and enslaved Africans who are violently disconnected from our land base. So I'm not, so for me, I think these are the questions and tensions I sit in and the only way I'm able to resolve them now. And I'm so curious to hear how you all define these different kinds of states and possibilities um, is to do what you said, Leanne, and what we talk about as rehearsals, right? Which is, and the way I've been talking about it lately is like some millennia ago, there was a fish swimming in an ocean who grew feet. It didn't know anything about anything, but what was around it, but it was like, I'm gonna grow some feet. And millennia later, we're sitting here on a Skype call talking about our role and relationship to the state. So let's be the fish who grow feet or other parts. I don't know, but I'm just, um, I'm so curious about how you think we can step into these tensions and questions. Wow. <laughs> I feel like that was a really, really, um, that was a beautiful offering and a beautiful invitation. And it was also so overwhelming <laughs> because I feel, um, I also feel in this moment sort of lost. But what I go back to is, and what I feel grateful that I can go back to is, is my ancestors and Anishinaabe formations. 
And in we didn't have police and we didn't have prisons and we didn't have borders. We had zones of overlap with increasing diplomacy. And we didn't have a society where punishment um, or punitive measures was okay. And I think about that a lot as an educator, and I think about that a lot as a parent, because that is so embedded and embodied in the state and in all of the institutions that replicate that. So I think a lot in my own work about formations that meet the needs of not just the humans that are in the formation, but of all of the living things that are in that formation and all of the, the things that those living things are connected to and in deep relationality to, because that sets it out into this international global sort of context. And how then do we live in this deep reciprocal relationality in a way where authoritarian power is unthinkable, where hierarchy is unthinkable. And I think my ancestors knew how to do that really, really well. So one of the ways that um, I rehearse that is by taking groups of indigenous folks out on the land and living together over the course of, of a week or six weeks or a few months in these tiny smaller formations or basically an extended family trying to embody these practices, embody these ethics and seeing what we learn about the way that um, my ancestors lived um, across scales. So they practiced these these sort of ways of relating to each other, which were embedded in, a, in an incredible kindness and an incredible care and built societies that met the needs of people so that you didn't need police and that you didn't need um, prisons. And then they were able to replicate that across scales from families to clans to communities to this this larger nation formation. And so when I use the word nationhood, I'm talking about this formation of deep relationality with these communities of living things, whether they're plants or animals or humans, sharing a particular time in a space and making this place and making, doing this rehearsal kind of together. So it's a network that's cycling through time. It's a web of intimate connections where I think of my body, not so much as a body, as a human body, but as a hub of different relationships with water, with plants, with animals, with rivers, with the cosmos and, and with other humans. Um, and I think of what, what do we need in terms of healthcare? What do we need in terms of decision-making? What do you need in terms of leadership? What do you need in terms of intellect, um, emotional, spiritual, education? What do you need to reproduce a system like that? What do you need to have groups of living things thinking, what can I give up in my life to promote more life? How can I feed into this system that creates a cascading um, web of, of life? And I think that's kind of a more philosophical approach to that, but that's been really useful and generative in my life for um, 
sort of disassociating or, or attaching a little bit from, from the state. So if you can make a state so that it's unrecognizable as a state, <laughs> then I'm all in. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like once you start, once I go down, and this is what I love about abolitionist thinkers, once you go down this this road of, of um, you know, I want to build a life where, where punishment doesn't exist, you actually have to change everything and you have to think of a completely different way of of living in the world and and that's that's the work and that's that's the love right there and that's why i think um uh mariam cabba's work has been so lands so well with me and the work that i'm doing even though i think it's very 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 different um because it's just thinking through what those those possibilities are and so i love those moments andrea that you were talking about um when you're like, oh my God, this is possible. Oh my God, you know, the Zapatistas are like, are like organizing in this huge way against all odds. And they're cracking open these possibilities that I'd never dared to even dream of. And um, I think that that's, that's what I can contribute to, to this conversation. Thank you. It's an incredibly beautiful vision. And, and one that I think we can practice, even if we aren't able to draw on the long traditions, uh, not in a colonizing way, but in a way that is rooted in our, where we are situated um, in the work. But I'm curious what you think, Robin. Absolutely. So, I mean, to sort of riff off what you were saying, Leanne, you know, the, the idea that we could have a world without police and prisons, right? Realize, part of what can help us to rem to imagine this is remembering that those are not historically immutable institutions, but were at some point fairly recent within human history created and then mapped onto the, you know, the global history. And I think the same is true with it, with, with the idea of the nation state as, as a, as a globalized form of governance in the way that we've had it today, which is only really one historical evolution uh, with like, like what I would, I guess, no, to say that with more precision, what I would say is for the most part, the history of the nation state has been the history of slavery and imperialism, has been the history of an expanding global carceral state uh, with relying on policing prisons and borders to retrench inequality. Now, of course, there are pockets of different uh, places, but I think that living within a global governance structure has sort of delimited those possibilities, not perhaps out of their own failures, but out of just the way that uh, global wealth extraction continues um, in a very racially une unequal way. So I think, you know, for many of us familiar with the history of policing and the establishment of, you know, the US and Canada, for example, as states, it's clear that the history of indigenous genocide and land theft by means of organized violence, slavery, convict labor, chain gangs, that these developed the development of the prison industrial complex, right? That this really was developed at the same way as the nation states that we now reside under, however illegitimate their authority may be to us, right? That these developed, you know, in tandem and sort of in mutually constituting ways. Um, and I think that it's helpful to remember that this, although now this is a formation that has been applied globally, um, that policing and prisons globally are also an inheritance of slavery and colonialism at the same time as Europe imposed this division of conquered territories into discrete political units, they became nation states, right? So I'm just really trying to point out that these historical evolutions are not permanent features of global uh, society, but really occurred in ways that sort of have intertwined um, 
and thus have made them kind of connected necessarily at this time, right? So um, Florence Bernal, for example, this does some really valuable work on the history of carceral controls um, on the African continent, showing the way that European empires through projects of massive land theft, um, you know, as part of a condition for their possibility, relied on a steadily expanding infrastructure of prisons, right? Modeled from the slave ports in West Africa, in which convict labor, labor played an important role to these economies, right? So this is part of retrenching the continent under European control in this, in what was called the scramble for Africa, right? That also, you know, at the same time destroyed other modes of governance, of ways of organizing land, um, and created discrete political units for administration that again, eventually sort of became nation states. So there's nothing natural about this emergence anywhere. And it's deeply implicated with the history of the development of carceral expansion everywhere. And that becomes really clear, for example, if you look to the NSARS movement um, in Nigeria, right, looking at the, the, the connections they're drawing between the creation of the police force that's, you know, that's impacting so many people at that time as a creation of, of British colonialism. So I think that what becomes clear is that the formal end of colonization, you know, repurposed police forces and prisons, but didn't eradicate them, right? So that's not to say that people didn't try for other kinds of governance, but that these carceral formations uh, stayed with us, right? And today we have Haitians being deported from uh, the Bahamas. We have migrants being rounded up in South Africa that borders police and prisons um, are, uh, you know, in the service of and at the behest of the nation state are killing us globally. So to think about this question differently, um, you know, I think one of the questions you'd thrown out there, Andrea, is what might an abolitionist and anti-capitalist state look like? But to me, a question, I would rephrase it a little bit, right? To say what might abolitionist and anti-capitalist futures look like? And what kinds of governance, what forms of governance would or could be amenable to that? And to start from there and work uh, outwards, because if we know that most of the world functioned for most of human history in the absence of what we would call a centralized Westphalian state. If we know that this is born of European imperialism, there's no reason to presume the state, you know, to think with what you were saying, Leanne, before, is immutable or inevitable, that there have been many other forms of governance that have existed and many will likely emerge in afterwards. So, you know, as abolitionists, we're often asked, what instead of police and policing, right? And I think what we often say is, not bringing in one institution to do what police do because that would inevitably recreate the police, right? There's this idea that we need multitudes, we need uh, secure housing. We do of course need centralized infrastructure in terms of water cleaning, for example, I think most of us could agree, right? But there's not one thing uh, that you can replace the police with. So do we need an abolitionist state or do we need something else? Do we need many something else? Um, if we believe that human societies can occur without surveillance, without police policing and caging human beings, why can't we also imagine it's possible to organize having people's needs met without centralized authoritarian forms of distributing power and of holding legitimate violence? And what might the world look like if it wasn't organized into discrete sort of member-based units with hierarchical structure and this insider-outsider model of the citizen and the non-citizen? This is part of asking what might a world look like beyond capitalism, and it asks us to, to think about to think about that a little bit further, right? So instead of saying, what could the one thing that the state is become, I think we the question of how do we create a world that meets people's needs helps to get us there, you know, somewhat differently, right? So I think that, you know, there's histories of stateless societies broadly conceived. Uh, you know, Cedric Robinson, for example, in the terms of order talks about the Ilatonga, an agrarian Bantu speaking, um, um, 
you know, people who are who are living in what's now called Zambia, right, who lived, have lived and live as communities without hierarchy and political authority, of which there are many others. Leanne has provided other examples of historical contexts, you know, here in the place where I'm speaking to you from. So there's so many aspects um, of what we know to be the state, for example, child welfare, uh, that have that have punishment. And Andrea, you were really getting to this, right? And surveillance sort of built into how they function, right? Border controls, public education that are central to the the modern state formation that we know, right, that must be abolished for us to have anything that, that's like freedom, right? But if we work toward the abolition of the carceral parts of the state, would it be recognizable? Would it matter if we called it the state or would, we matter, or would it matter if we called it something else, right? I think that it's so dramatically different from what we have access to um, that I think that, that that is something that I that I wonder, right? So if what we're working for is societies that are not structured by coercion and violence without rulers, cops or cages. Um, I think that 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 project of imagination is as important and thinking about governance imaginatively is as important as the kinds of kaleidoscopic uh, imaginings that we need to imagine the ways that we could solve harm without centralized without centralized uh, centralized, uh, you know, violence workers. Right. So Erica Edwards has these words that I just wanted to bring out that are so helpful uh, in the introduction to the newer version of Cedric Robinson's Terms of Order. Um, and she says, if we agree that human relationships exceed order and that in fact they flourish best when given over to a naturally disorderly things, the natural world, body, the ancestors, the experimental, then violence doesn't rightly belong to anyone. So given the history of the ways that the state has emerged as a way of organizing violence and inequality on a global scale, I think it is important that whatever we decide to call it, the centralizing of violence and of legitimizing violence is something that we do not accept. If we are abolitionists against violence and harm, then we are also against violence and harm being something that is proxy to one particular authority that we that we grant a legitimacy in our lives. So that's not an answer, but it's kind of a thinking with what are we trying to, you know, to build uh, as we imagine the kind of futures that uh, that that we need to at this time of enormous uh, racial violence, climate catastrophe, where many of the worlds we've come to know are crumbling, but also much as possible in terms of what else what else people are trying to build at this time. Phew. There's so much in in there, and it just there were a few there were many things that went off in my head, but one was how paradigm shifting or how how perspective shifting it is the that you're the framework that you're offering is like what do abolitionist futures look like and then what forms of governance uh get us closer there and i appreciate leanne being like as long as it doesn't look anything like any state i've ever seen call it what you want <laughs> um and i think um it reminds me of insight uh sort of saying organizing itself around you know what is the what would make women trans and gender non-conforming people safe? That was a central organizing question, not how do we work with what we have to make it better to whatever. It was, let's start with the central thing that matters to us. And that's also black feminism and indigenous feminisms, right? Like what, how do we start from the well-being of the people who are currently living at the intersections of the systems, the interlocking systems that we're trying to tear down as the Kumbahee River Collective? Um, names it. So I think that is a really helpful framework. Um, and also, 
yeah, I, I, there's so many ways in which this conversation with Mariam and I had in, in writing not only just this section of the book, but all of it that were mind blowing and heart blowing open to me as well. And I think one thing I've learned from her is, is what you're saying is like, it's, it's thousands of things. It's not one thing. There's not one 10 point plan to where we're going. Um, it's really difficult as a Capricorn for me to accept this, but that is, you know, I really, the places where she's constantly pushing me to grow and understand is that there's a million experiments. It's a thousand different things. It's, you can't possibly imagine be the fish growing the legs. If you are stuck in like some progress narrative and some kind of linear process it's everything all at once all the time it's um it's happening now it's been happening it will happen it's happening um in what um in abolition feminism now they talk about abolitionist conceptions of time right which is that you know we're not stuck in some progress narrative or linear time that's shaped by the structures you described robin right that have actually been around for a relatively short period of time in human existence so I appreciate that. I also want to take us to one more sort of um, place before we uh, talk a little bit more about what rehearsal of the things that you're, of the ways, new ways of being, of living, of relationship, of governance um, look like in, in practical terms um, today beyond what you've already described. And that is... Um, keeps me up a little bit at night. Uh, what are the potential consequences of turning away from the state as a site of contestation in the context of the global rise of fascism, accelerating climate collapse? Are there institutions of the state that we can, must fight for, to your point, Leanne, to house us, to, to provide healthcare, to feed us, to provide clean water? Um, uh, to hold some kind of global agreement around how we meet climate collapse or catastrophe. Um, can we hold any of those things while extracting policing from them? Is there some way that, as you were saying, that you can, you know, redistribute the state's resources without redistributing the policing and carcerality of the state with it, right? How does that program that you were describing, Leanne, take the the resources from the state, but not take the policing carceral strings that come with it, you know, or are there ways that we need to be fighting to keep public schools and just keep the cops out of them, keep um, public water systems, but make sure no one's water is ever fucking turned off in the way that it is in Detroit, right? Keep these, some systems, is there some fight that I should be engaged in while white supremacists less than 30 miles from me are arguing to take all kinds of books out of schools and punish teachers who teach certain things and, you know, police and punish children who are in certain ways in school districts. Is there some fight I need to be engaged in there? Um, yeah. Uh, to, to ensure survival as we rehearse otherwise. Um, are we conceding to the Federalist Society who just recently declared that the right must not must grow and not shrink the state and continue to more explicitly wield it as a blunt instrument to impose a very white supremacist fascist agenda, which it's already doing, but to just do that more? Does shifting beyond the uh, turning away from the state make more room for community 
you know, for things that are happening beyond the state, but to white supremacist, you know, ends. Uh, I think these are questions that people have posed as challenge to this framework that we've been sort of, um, the space that we've been um, thinking in. So I'm gonna pose that to either of you. I think that I don't, I don't know. I think, and I'm, and that's okay. I think that there are a thousand, a million different experiments happening right now. I think that I know that, and I, I believe in that. I believe in that part where you said, um, you were, I think you were talking, Andrea, about organizing with insight, where you start with the, with how do you maintain the well-being or how do you support the well-being of your local community? And if you let that kind of ethic then drive your engagement, um, I think that that then tells you what, what to do or tells you what's, what's possible. And sometimes that might mean engaging with the state. Sometimes that might mean um, taking in a, in a short term or in a medium term, um, taking whatever those those resources are, whether that's clean water, fighting for clean water, fighting for for um, abortion, fighting for books, fighting for knowledge. Um, so I, I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I'm in a position to tell anybody in terms of how they should be organizing or what they or the tools that they should be using in the community that they are given the the circumstances that they're in i think the one thing that i that i really appreciate i heard um robin dg kelly speaking on a podcast the other day and he was sort of compelling us to act <laughs> compelling us to not just ride this out and think that fascism is going to you know just go away and that the state we're going to wake up is suddenly going to meet our needs like we're in the the fight of our lives we're in a struggle and i think that practice of centering um the well-being of community and then going from there um places are working this constellation of a thousand experiments um and that then starts to to move in and build beyond. We can't hear you, Robin. And there's there's gems being dropped. I know. How, how about now? Yes. That was a gem at this time. But what I was going to say is, you know, I really appreciate this question because I think that we do live in a pretty high stakes moment in terms of just the really quick descent into, uh, you know, what is can be described, I think, quite literally as the rise of fascism very clearly uh, where we're all living and globally. Right. So to me, I see this as kind of a both and moment. Right. We live at a time where a lot of the state, I think, whether we want it to or not, is among one of the places in which we always struggle. Right. We've seen from the, we've seen the harms that come from state abandonment, uh, club crumbling public infrastructures that are not are not amenable to conditions uh, that allow us to build thriving movements, right? The fact that the massive defunding of hospitals, public health care, long-term care, for example, we saw in the context of the pandemic are quite literally leaving our elders, um, folks who are disabled and many other people 
um, you know, in harm's way. So I think because of the very racial, gendered, and abled unevenness of access to life-saving public infrastructures, I think that, you know, to abandon those uh, is something that would be too dangerous uh, to consider, right? I think that there's really important work happening, for example, to push back uh, to support libraries, right, against this sort of whatever what's called the anti-woke movement, but to sort of neo-McCarthyism that's trying to make, to get rid of public uh, libraries and publication, public education as places where you could even learn about the actual history of the places that you live, right? So much, at, even though, you know, as somebody that, you know, spent an entire chapter of my book looking at the afterlives of slavery in the public school system in Canada, I think that I would not, uh, what it is not calling for is a sort of libertarian abandonment of the idea of some way of making sure that kids can go to school, right? And that kids can learn, especially people who have less access to education. So one way of thinking about this both and moment, I, I was actually just thinking about this as I was at a presentation by community workers, uh, Zoe Dodd and Les Harper and others um, who had been a part of the encampment, the support for in people living in encampments. Uh, during and after the pandemic, especially, right, in tent encampments in Toronto. So they were highlighting the ways in which the city failed to meet people's needs, right, by turning off the drinking water, by shelters that were drastically overcrowded, and this way that really important mutual aid projects, of course, but with encampment residents, but also, you know, a really vast network of encampment support next work were created where people were drinking on water uh, or people were bringing drinking water, tents, sleeping bags, you know, supporting one another with the kinds of things they would need. But at the same time, just, you know, to think with this both and uh, people continue to to push demands on the city, right? To say, turn on the water, right? I think that you'd never want to abandon the idea that the water should be turned on, that not only should the police stop coming into the park and, you know, taking people's tents, but that people should be offered housing, right? So to me, I don't see these as contradictory um, in the context of just really preserving life-affirming um, infrastructures in the absence of, in the absence of them, right? So I think that what we saw as a counterexample of a different way of organizing against the state, right, was the freedom convoys, right, and this kind of libertarian push to get rid of public health mandate, to get rid of the idea, you know, of public health. It's not pushing against police in the carceral state, right? It's against the the, the parts of the state that actually take care of people. So as we are trying to push for a care-based society being expansive, even as we work through being really careful about what that means, right, being careful about not allowing, you know, the sort of vast, the vastly expandive way that um, policing is being brought into healthcare is part of mental health policing, right? But to try to move those carceral aspects away while still saying that we want and believe in supports that we want to have a society based in caring for everyone, uh, you know, that's a kind of agreement that I think really separates us from the right wing push against <laughs> against state that's actually just a push against collect any kind of collectivism and for individualism that really is, you know, a survival of the fittest model that, you know, particularly in this context, leaves so many of us even more vulnerable to death, um, to premature death, as Ruthie calls it than before. So I think keeping that distinction is really important. The idea that we need to have a care-based society, but we need to do so without, uh, in ways that is not carceral, that's based in collective mutual responsibility, is what I think helps to sort of think through a little bit of those tensions and looking at the ways in which you can kind of, at the same time as making particular kinds of demands, can still continue to envision something dramatically, dramatically different, right? So 
you know, in this moment, uh, just to sort of bring it back with how we opened this, right, of a strong support for this movement, you know, even if the media and uh, political leaders have 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 said that this will that this is over, right? But this movement to defund, dismantle, and disarm police and all aspects of the carceral state is incredibly powerful and life affirming. Meant something extraordinary to, you know, hundreds and thousands and historic numbers of people who came out in support of this, right? And at the same time, in this moment of vast public education, we have so much to learn, right? From drug user-led movements that tell us that we need to divorce, you know, surveillance and barriers for act, um, and not just decriminalize drugs, right, but to actually take surveillance out of access to healthcare, out of harm reduction programs. And these are these kind of ways of both ending our way to uh, having accessible, you know, caring uh, supports for people at the same time as we try to minimize and eradicate the sort of violence that's structured into there. So I think that that is some of the ways to me what it means to think about abolition democracy in the present day, right? If we think about abolition as presence and we're very careful about what that presence might be, then again, does it matter if we call it the state or not? Not necessarily. Uh, does it matter as we fight to make sure that there are public libraries if we could imagine a more liberatory way that libraries would and could be organized in the future? If we want to save the idea that public education must exist, but believe it has to be radically transformed in order to not be a site of policing and mass violence for young black people as, as it currently is today, right? So um, those are a few of my thoughts on this. I could go on, but I know we're getting close to close to closing time. We are. Um, and, you know, I'm hearing Mariam's voice very loudly in my head, um, where one of the things that she really organizes um, some of her thinking around these issues um, is the notion of the commons and funding the commons and the commons being rooted um, in her thinking and, and mine as well in the black feminist politic of collective care, which all of us have been speaking to that you've been speaking to through this, the context of indigenous communities of collective care um, that are organized around an ethic, a whole ideological framework and practice. And I love how you write Leanne about, you know, that, that you can't just think about these things, you need to act them and acting produces knowledge. And it's it's a praxis really, right? The black business is also about praxis that we are enacting collective care and that we're doing that by funding the commons, which is uh, an unpoliced space, an unpoliced um, uh, set, you know, set of resources that we access without condition um, where we meet needs as needs. And, you know, Brendan McQuaid, um, calls the, that process commoning against security, right? So, so funding the commons against the notion that we need to have security, which is protection of capital, basically, and protection of um, individuality. So I just, I really, um, uh, that really resonates with the things that you're saying. The other thing um, that came up is uh, thank you, Leanne, for regrounding us and like, just do what's best for your community. Don't panic. Um, Kelly Hayes and Mariam Kaba are writing a book um, that has a beautiful name and a beautiful cover, neither of which I can call to mind at this moment, but it's being published by Haymarket and hopefully they'll drop the link in the chat. Um, but the way Mariam and Kelly have both described it is, is sort of a book that basically says, settle down, find your lane and fight like hell. But to, that it's very, you know, that the ideas to disorient us around like, oh, my God, this is happening. The, the, you know, the state is collapsing around us. The right is absolutely trying to shove its fascist vision of the future into that collapse. 
um, and precipitate it in order to bring it about, and that we need to center in what is best for our communities, what is going to most produce abolitionist futures, and practice and shove that into that space, and that that involves um, funding the commons. So I just really encourage folks to to heed those calls to just calm the fuck down, I think is what Mariam often tweets, and just look around, find your lane, and figure out how to practice and rehearse those futures in the million ways that are out there. I um, also want to lift up um, Kelly Hayes' Movement Memos, which I think is one of the most brilliant um, podcasts out there right now. If you don't listen to, if you listen to one thing, can you please just listen to that? Because this most recent episode was one that also sort of talked about how our vision of collapse can lead us to act in ways that further it rather than in ways that rehearse abolitionist futures. And so I really appreciate both of you grounding us in that. And I guess to your point about closing, um, in just a few minutes, I'm going to introduce a resource that we created for folks to have these conversations among yourselves. So stay tuned for that. But I do want to invite both of you to sort of close us out with, you know, how are these conversations and these thinkings together that you're both doing and with people in your communities and organizing spaces sort of what are some things that are exciting that you're doing that that move us forward there uh, beyond what you've already described, which are many things. I really appreciate all the examples you've shared, Leanne, but are, are there other things that you really want to invite people to think with or, or think about as they're sort of these questions are swirling around in their head that you've come to through um, your thinking about it and organizing? Well, I really think it's a really beautiful kind of ending point that you've done the comma fuck down, get into your lane, fight like hell. And the only thing that I would maybe add to that is then think about how your lane is linked to my lane, is linked to Robin's lane. And how do we build this this sort of ecosystem then of um, of of communities that are organizing and fighting and fighting like hell. I think that that's linking those thousands of experiments that are happening, um, figuring out what's different, what's similar, and how to support each other um, grows that community of care. And I think that that's, uh, that's, a, that's something that um, I think I, I find enlightening. I mean, really what I'm hearing from both of you so strongly is the importance of acting and of acting still not with so much haste that there's not care and thought and intention, but being able to act and actually believing that it's important and okay and necessary to act, even if we don't yet believe that we have all the answers. And in fact, hopefully we will stay humble enough to always understand that we won't know all the answers, right? So, you know, to paraphrase George Jackson, uh, fascism is here, right? People are already dying who could be saved. I think that there's particular streams of academia, there's very masculine kinds of activism that tell us that we need to loudly and obnoxiously claim vast knowledge over all, a kind of mastery of knowledge of, over everything. Um, and I think feminist organizing historically allows us for more curiosity, uh, is praxis oriented in the way that so is abolitionist kind of thinking that allows us the ability to learn while in the service of liberation. So I think that it's important for me, the only thing I would add to all of this is that, you know, that we stay curious as we stay principled. Um, I think given what we're up against as a global plan planetary society um, in the context of, of climate catastrophe, of ongoing pandemic, 
in addition to the pandemics of racial capitalism and police and prisons, what might, you know, what I think informs me is that much as I think it's so important to learn from movement elders, from history, and all of the ways that I can, and as much as I can, that old formations may not be enough to meet the contemporary levels of crisis that we're facing. So as much as we learn from the past, we're going to need to improvise. And abolitionist conjure work and it's science fiction and it's many other imaginative uh, things that I think that we've really been trying to bring to the forefront. So, you know, the future is unwritten, but the best that we can do is to stack the deck with everything that we have, with everything that we have available to us in defense of, of all earthly life. Thank you so much. It reminds me of a quote um, that we cite in our Black Feminist Musings chapter from Lorraine Hansberry, um, which says, you know, we can impose beauty on our future. And I think that's what this um, work is about. It's about imposing uh, life and, and fighting for life. Um, yeah, on our future. So thank you um, both for, I'm sorry, I was also thinking about um, so much and I really want to lift up Leanne, what you're saying about states, as even Ruthie defines them, are territorially bounded in the functions that she describes them as having. And I love the the, the vision you lifted up for us um, to the question about, do we need states to respond to these climate catastrophes? No, they are perpetuating them. And the, the interlocking, overlapping diplomacy negotiated ways of being to that are interconnected in the ways that you're describing, Leanne, feel like um, a really important uh, piece for us to center in that vision as well. So thank you for those gifts. Um, we want other folks to join us in these conversations. So first I wanna thank Robin and Leanne for accepting the invitation to be here with us in this conversation tonight. It was such a, a, a rich, deep, heartfelt pleasure to be able to do that in person, having been in conversation with your book as we were writing ours, um, literally on the desk the whole time. Um, and also um, want to invite other folks to be in converse these conversations as well. So I'm going to ask Sean to pull up the slides that share a resource that will be available later this week. Um, you should uh, stay tuned for... Um, on uh, interrupting criminalization, social media. Um, and it is a discussion tool um, that invites individual and collective reflection around some of these generative questions that we have been engaged in tonight in order to open up, not just, not we're not in the debate, we're not in the soccer, what Shira Hassan calls the boring soccer match between two ideologies, um, but we're actually in that generative juicy space that Leanne uh, reference the space of nuance, the space of ideological poly that then brings together uh, the best of all traditions to open up a multitude of possibilities. So um, we're just going to walk through a few slides and I'll go to the next one, Sean, um, that in, to show you kind of the kinds of questions that people are, we're inviting people to engage. What is the state? What is a nation state? How is that distinct from a nation? You heard a lot from Leanne about that tonight. How does that distinction matter? Um, how is a racial capitalist state distinct from a socialist state, distinct from a carceral state? How is a government distinct from a state? Because I think we tend to conflate the two and Craig Gilmore is always, uh, and Ruthie also are in, always inviting us to think about governance, governments as things that animate the institutions of the state and that those are the sites of contestation. 
um, about what those institutions, what purposes they'll be put to. And then what is governance, which we've spoken a lot about tonight, as distinct from government, which is centralized decision making by some form of representative something called democracy. Um, so we not only invite people to reflect on those questions and to be in study of them, we offer some resources for reading, but there's many, many more out there and we invite you to share those with each other. Um, we also offer some sort of tidbits of ways that people we are in conversation and community have answered those questions. So there's the definition of states that Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Craig Gilmore offer in Restating the Obvious, which I highly recommend everyone to read carefully. There's the one that we offer in No More Police. There's the one I referenced earlier that Dean Spade offers um, and one that Robin offers. And then throughout there are others that many other people are thinking with. So, you know, we offer you some snippets. These quotes are not the totality of these folks' thoughts, right? This quote, you just heard, you know, two hours of Robin's brilliance. This quote doesn't represent a snippet, a snippet like, like more than, more a, than drop a drop of it, of but it, it is something, something for, folks for folks to kind of, kind of think with or, re react or react and respond, and respond to. to. Um, we, um, also we also invite folks, Sean, Sean to the next, to the next slide, slide um, um, to think to about, about, as we, as we did, did today, today, you know, what you know, shapes what our understanding of the states, state, both in terms of the context that we grew up in, our experiences in interacting with the state, the things that we witnessed the state do and not do in our lives and around us. And going to the next slide, you know, thinking through what political engagements or historical and contemporaneous state models um, um, we might learn from or engage with. Um, going to the next slide, we ask folks to kind of delve deep into what functions does the state perform? Because we've talked about a bunch of them. We've talked about policing and we've talked about water. We've talked about prisons and we've talked about land theft. And we've talked about, um, you know, many different ways um, that the state operates through various institutions. So on the next slide, um, it shows some of the questions we ask. We ask folks to just make a list of all the functions you can think of that states currently perform. And then think about which functions you want states to perform. What do we get from the state that we can't directly provide for ourselves and our people? And I think this is something um, I've heard you, Robin, and, and others, and certainly Dean Spade and many folks talk about how the state has de-skilled us. It has made us into people who delegate everything to the state. And then, um, to your point, Leanne, about feeling enmeshed in the state. Because we've delegated everything to the state, now we're all enmeshed in the state. And it's like we've lost the capacity of just picking up the phone and checking on our neighbor instead of calling 911. We've lost the capacity to de-escalate a conflict instead of calling a cop to not de-escalate it, right? Um, we've lost the capacity to grow food for ourselves and for each other. We've lost the capacity to do lots, do lots of things that we could do, do um, for ourselves and each other. And how has the state furthered that? that? By regulating who can do what, who can be a midwife, who can't, who can administer medicine, who can't, who can, you know, educate people who can't. How is the state participating in de-skilling us? And then for the functions we do want the state to perform, can we imagine ways that they can do that without policing of some kind? And then can we imagine other ways of doing it? Um, and what might stand in the way from us doing that. Uh, to the next slide, we also invite people to be, as um, Robin was saying, pragmatic. How do we navigate states in the meantime? So to the next slide, 
How do we do as Leanne described, extract power and resources from the state and redistribute it to the community? We organize to defund and divest. And how do we avoid investing in things that empower and legitimize the carceral state in other ways? How do we bolster the institutions that we do think we need to fight for as are in the individual communities, whether it's a public school, healthcare, housing, infrastructure, et cetera, um, but simultaneously fight to take out their carceral functions? And how do we protect our experiments? Because I think the thing that I also find confusing is that yes, we're gonna try these million experiments um, and then insights logic, I think, or what I heard there probably uh, didn't necessarily totally understand it, but was that that we would proliferate enough other ways of being together that we would somehow dislodge the state or make the carceral state irrelevant or render ourselves ungovernable by the carceral state. I'm old enough to have seen many such experiments quashed in the ways that Robin described and distorted and absorbed and crushed uh, when they refused to be absorbed. And so I wonder, you know, how do we protect our experiments and efforts to build beyond the state in the meantime? To the next slide. It's a beautiful piece of art by Noah Jodis um, that we commissioned to try and sort of illustrate this thing that Mariam is often describing of everything happening everywhere all at once, that we are moving all of the strategies that we talked about today, fighting against the state to um, uh, extract resources, um, moving within the state if we can to extract resources and extract carcerality and most of all, being in that juicy, nuanced space that we talked a lot about today beyond the state and practicing things that will lead us to an unknown, um, but, uh, and that all of those things are in relationship with each other, which brings us to the next slide. Um, that sort of names that this framework that is described in the picture is one that um, has been framed as dual power strategies, making power, taking power by insight and the Zapatistas um, that uh, is now being framed as moving within, against and beyond the states. Uh, it's a framework that's been developed in the global south in Chile, Argentina, Brazil, other places where people are trying to move beyond and certainly by the Zapatistas, people are trying to move beyond state capture to imagine how to resist neoliberalism, which is sucking resources out of the commons how to pull the resources back into the commons and back out into the communities um, by contesting for power within the state, defending our communities against the state and dreaming beyond the state to create more conditions of possibility, imagine new forms of governance that bring us closer to abolitionist futures as Robin was saying and creating fertile ground on which to practice them. And to Leanne's point to build the skills, the relationships, the infrastructure, the things that we need to practice in order to be able to bring those into being. And important, um, as the next slide illustrates, that we deploy those strategies in close coordination, as Leanne was saying. We can't be uh, moving within the state in a way that's not coordinated with folks who are moving beyond the state, lest we undermine or act at cross purposes to each other by uh, engaging in some of the activities or um, practices um, described here, including, for instance, if we're uh, moving within the state, but creating categories of people who can and can't engage in certain kinds of activities. So if we're moving within the state to legalize uh, marijuana, let's not do it in a way that gives the state more power to determine who can do and who can't. 
uh, do what with marijuana in the ways that uh, legalization can do. So let's think about how we move in coordination together. And then lastly, the, the next slide shows that we are inviting folks to think about what lies beyond the nation state as we've been talking about today. Um, and some of the questions for that are listed on the next slide, um, which are questions that Robin was posing. What forms of government governance make abolitionist futures more possible? How are we practicing them? How can we practice them? And then what possibilities lay in engaging the state at a regional level, a local level, to Leanne's point, like in your particular community, what can you achieve through engaging the, the state in particular ways? And how can we practice new forms of governments in our organizing, in our collective care, in our mutual aid, in our transformative justice, in our time on the land, as Leanne was saying. So on the next slide, um, we have sort of a graphic note of Harsha Walia, who we've talked about uh, today, addressing some of these questions, um, talking about how people are practicing non-statist forms of governance, even within nation states today. And this notion of the border being something that absolutely has to go if we really want to think about a non-carceral future. So we encourage folks, if you go to the next slide, to read these books, including Harsha's book, Border and Rule, as well as Leanne's uh, earlier book, as we've always done, along with Rehearsals for Living. Um, the Dawn of Everything is a 700-page book. People have encouraged me to point folks to a particular chapter, but there's something... Um, about moving through a very comprehensive um, examination of different state formations throughout history um, that can shape these um, conversations. And then we invite people on the next slide, um, think about how those, how do your responses to these questions shape what you do now? Make a list of your current demands and then think about how, what you've reflected on individually or collectively using this tool um, shapes those demands. Do you want to get on that public safety task force or not, given your reflections, given your assessment of conditions, given your assessment of what's going to be best for your community? So on the last slide, we're inviting you to join the conversation. So this discussion tool, which we'll have out for you later this week um, with these questions, is just the first in a series. It's intended as an entry point into deeper conversations, collective study, and debate. Um, about how we move under current conditions and those to come. It offers questions, not answers, but they're intended for you to find your own answers through individual study and reflection and collective conversation. And we really wanna make the invitation for folks to form study groups with the people you're organizing with or building with community or being in conversation with or, or growing food with or with your neighbors to really grapple with these and other questions um, as they're relevant to your organizing. And if you feel moved to share your responses and reflections with us um, at uh, info at interruptingcriminalization.org, and we are going to put, keep putting series out with people's reflections and responses to reflect. We don't all agree. Sometimes we're confused. Sometimes we're lost. But there is so much to be learned by being in conversation with each other and the notion that, you know, that's going to sharpen us towards um, the goal we have. And on the last slide, just wanted to let folks know that this conversation will continue on November 15th. Um, 
Harsha Walia, who we've talked about, William Anderson, who was also mentioned, and Dean Spade, who we've mentioned, as well as Gord Hill, will have a, a similar conversation um, and explore these questions at an event hosted by the Barnard Center for Research on Women. If you want to continue to follow this conversation between this trio, um, we will be at the American Studies Association on November 3rd, um, and we will be in Minneapolis um, at the NWSA and also um, an event at a local bookstore the night before. And um, also want to invite folks to, yeah, that's it, I think, for the ongoing conversation between the three of us. So there'll be more opportunities to hear us in conversation about this as well. Um, oh yeah, I remember the other thing I wanted to, last thing I wanted to say from interrupting criminalization standpoint is, is that we are inviting particularly um, folks who are healthcare providers, uh, staff people, public health researchers, and folks in the health field to an event next um, Thursday, November 3rd, um, where we're going to be launching a set of principles about what abolitionist care looks like, what it looks like to provide health care uh, for and with each other in ways that don't um, implicate criminalization and carcerality. So it's one of the spaces in which we are practicing otherwise and inviting other people to practice otherwise toward the abolitionist futures that, um, that we've been talking about tonight. So that's um, where I think we'll end tonight. Um, just again, with deep gratitude to Leanne and Robin for joining us, sending care and love to Mariam, uh, who wasn't able to be here tonight, um, but was definitely here in spirit. Um, looking forward to hearing what Rufi has to say, because I'm sure she'll have something to say about our conversation tonight. Um, and just deep gratitude to, to um, Haymarket for, for hosting us, us um, and specifically to Sean um, for offering tech support and to our um, ASL, ASL interpreters, interpreters um, Lisa, Lisa and Judy, and, and to our um, captioner tonight, Lee Burston, who's been going for two hours without a break, which was not accessible. So we'll have to shift that up going forward. And with that, I think we'll close for the night. Thank you all for being here. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.